Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. We want to just start now? Yep. Why not? Hello and welcome to Local Zero. Today, Fraser and I are going to chat about a really awesome project we've been working on with Scottish Government, all about local and community energy. Yeah, really looking forward to it. But before we get into this chat, a massive thank you to the new listeners on Twitter who've reached out in the past couple of weeks. For example, we had this lovely message from at Jester Mouse on Twitter who said, just discovered the superb podcast on achieving net zero in Scotland. This episode focusing on Edinburgh in particular. Glad you enjoyed it. And you can go and check out that particular Edinburgh episode and also the first two episodes of Professor Hannon's mini-series on nature-based carbon community offsetting wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've not already, well, let's be honest, where have you been for the past few years? But now is the time to catch up. Search Local Zero wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe. Also, find us on Twitter. We are at Local Zero Pod if you want to connect with us there. And we also love to hear from you via email. So send any episode suggestions, potential guests, or just kind of your wider thoughts to the pod, localzeropod at gmail.com. Would you believe that this is the first episode that all three of us have been together on since March the 9th? No. That really? That doesn't feel right. I, I genuinely am surprised. I know I know it's in the episode notes here and I have read them, but I'm surprised again that you're saying it out loud. Uh, what, what have we been doing? I don't know if it's related, but I've been noticeably just really happy and relaxed. Noticeably <laughs> absent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. Correlation and causation and all that. but. <laughs> Just Very good. Well, what, what have we been doing? I mean, if March the 9th, I tell you what, one of the things I, I was um, just before Easter, which would have been maybe just after that recording, I was down in Westminster doing a mm-hmm. pairing scheme for the Royal Society. And I was paired with one of our local MPs, Alison Thewlis, who is the MP for Central Glasgow. And I was basically paired with her for a couple of days and got the run of Westminster. And let me tell you, it is a labyrinth um, and a pretty exciting place. So, um, I mean, I don't know whether you've had the opportunity to to walk around the Palace of Westminster ever, but 
Have you been inside? No, I tried to go in once, but the security alarms went off. It would, ordinarily, yeah, <laughs> if you try to get in. Yeah, no, that figures. Um, no, amazing place. And thank you to Alison for looking after me um, and to Royal Society. But I wrote, wrote a, a blog basically reflecting on the time there. But, it, you know, politicians, geez, they work at another level. And it was really interesting to see not just inside the, the House of Commons chamber where I sat for, for a number of hours or over a couple of days, but actually to see all of the other kind of side events that were happening, parliamentary committees, APPGs, all of these sort yeah. of evening soirees where policy is done and made. So, yeah, really interesting. I think particularly as academics, I think we can be um, quite hard sometimes on policymakers and politicians. You know, we can reflect on some of the challenges and where maybe enough isn't being done and, and look to policymakers and politicians and perhaps critique lack of action so did you think, Matt, being part and parcel of it all and getting this new insight, do you have do you have kind of a new appreciation for the challenge? Do you see things in a different way now? Yeah, I mean, right. So whether you're working in academia or now you're you're in a consultancy, but either way, in order to shift the dial for politicians and policy, you've got to have that kind of elevator pitch. You know, I always I, I knew what we had to have. I didn't necessarily know why we had to have it because they are being bombarded 24-7 by a whole myriad of different policy imperatives. And also each policy imperative or, or debate is coming with different kind of lines of evidence or inquiry attached to it. Like people have got different perspectives and those perspectives are built on different types of evidence. The big thing I came away with as a, as a scientist, uh, as, a, as a researcher, and I use that very broadly, not just academia, but it, it is incumbent on us to present that information in an objective fashion, in a really easy to understand manner, and a way that people actually want to digest it. So that's slightly different from easy. It's enjoyable. And, you know, they've only got the 30 seconds and probably the MP isn't going to read or the minister, it will be one of their, their groups. So maybe an obvious finding, but it helped me understand who my audience was. And it's often not the MP and understand how they want it. So yeah, interesting. If anybody wants to understand more, there's a, there's a blog out there. And uh, Royal Society have, have kindly kind of uh, retweeted that. But it has, isn't the only news. There's been lots of other stuff happening. Fraser, you wanted to pick up something, I think, about the impending Glasgow low emission zone. Yeah, yeah. So it's we've, we've covered a little bit on low emission zones, more on sort of low traffic neighbourhoods and, and transport in general. And Glasgow has been due for the last year or so, um, has been putting plans in place to implement its low emission zone from June 1st, 2023. So at the time of this pod going out, it should be in play. However, there has been a last minute stushy around the low emission zone, predominantly from opposition within the within Glasgow Council, arguing that some businesses haven't had enough time to adapt to that, arguing that some charities might suffer because of it, which is really, really interesting because we've talked a lot about the politics of this before. And the Glasgow Low Emission Zone has been in the works for at least the last year or so, if not before, including within opposition manifestos, not just the, the governing SNP and Green Coalition. The signs are up and have been up on the motorway for months. They have it's been. There. They have yeah. been. And it's actually, it's compared to some of them, in terms of the vehicles that can get through, in terms of the exemptions, it's relatively lax compared to, to others. But very much that kind of microcosm of a political backlash that seems to mire all of these these discussions now. Um, Matt, I don't know if you've been across this at all, being a, the only remaining Glasgow resident. Well, a, a little, and I've been picking up bad vibes on Twitter about it recently, but what are people getting upset mm -hmm. about, Fraser? 
it seems to be this argument now it, we hear this this all the time about low emission zones about that somehow it's it's going to penalize the working classes you're trying to mm. take things away from people the reality of course is that low emission zones deal with the air pollution that disproportionately impacts lower income groups uh, more socially disadvantaged groups and for the sake of listeners in simple terms the older your car the more likely it is to be penalized this is it so the the argument generally lacking in evidence is that well people on lower incomes tend to have much older dirtier cars that is sometimes mm. the case not often the case far more often uh, people rely on public transport they're not car owners at all so a big part of the argument is that well it's going to penalize people with older cars which is right but that doesn't exclusively fall within lower income groups but also the the political opposition seems to come from uh, local businesses and charities are going to suffer because of this they've not had enough time to to prepare for it. So they want to see a delay for another 12 months down the line. Problem with that is that that's 12 months more emissions, yeah. 12 shades, months Shades more. of the deposit return scheme. Uh, it the is. Deposit, now, you know. this is something that I want to pick up on because this is something that I do find a little bit concerning. As much as my opinion generally is just, please just get on with it. This is embarrassing. Mm -hmm. now. Let's just do it. We need to do it. We know we need to do it. Let's do it. But I worry a little bit with the deposit return scheme in Scotland which again, um, for listeners who aren't familiar, is about returning plastics, aluminiums, often cans and bottles into a, a, a reverse vending machine and getting a 20 pence returned. But 20, yeah. 20 pence would be added to the cost of it. So you just get it back. Exactly. Works in any number of places, just like other things we've talked about, free public transport, low emission zones, work perfectly well everywhere else. But somehow Scotland seems uniquely uh, unable to make any, any progress on it, which is really frustrating. And what I find worrying about it, luckily, general public doesn't seem to be overly connected with the deposit return scheme, but low emission zones are contentious. Uh, what I worry about is that if you're struggling to deliver these relatively minor parochial climate policies, you're going to struggle to bring people along for the bigger transformative changes that you need to deliver to maintain trust in your ability to do that. So my message to any, before we start talking about the work that we're doing with various governments, my message to anyone listening is please, for the love of God, just get on with it. It doesn't have to be this difficult. We can get it done and it'll be nice. Well, there you go. Sage words. Now, I think final item, Becky, this speaks, I think, squarely to your own personal experiences. But um, mm -hmm. I saw something uh, retweeted by various people, including Jan Rasnow, uh, who, a uh, big heating researcher, uh, big expert on this. 80% of people with heat pumps are happy. They're satisfied. They surveyed 2,500 domestic heat pump owners uh, and more than 1,000 domestic gas boilers across the UK, basically. So 80% of them were happy. And this was roughly on a par with gas boiler owners and operators. Now, Becky, you mm. are one step ahead of Fraser and I, I believe. Uh, you have a heat pump? I do. I do. And I do. Some have of the a results in there. What did you think? Um, so, yeah, so looking through these results and they ask people about how easy it is to use to control their satisfaction with how it's heating their water, how it's heating their space, running costs, reliability, all of those sorts of things. And overwhelmingly pretty high levels of satisfaction, as you point out. I have to say from having a heat pump, all of those things to me are very similar to the way my boiler operated, right? So like the way I yeah. use it, I have a thermostat. It's a device that's got almost nothing to do with the heat pump. I just sort of set the temperature on it. So um, I, I'm i not 100% sure yet what my running costs are going to be. Well, uh, interestingly, and, and I think we should flag this, yeah. running costs were 
where folk were probably least satisfied, but still yes. about, goodness, about almost 70% were either mm-hmm. satisfied or, or very satisfied. Yeah, and Anne, I note that the survey was conducted in December, which is great because obviously I could say right now I'm satisfied with my heat pump, but come winter it might not work. So, you know, good to see this is happening in winter. I would say what, to me, this survey misses out on and where I think is one of the bigger challenges that heat pumps will face is around the getting it in in the first place. Because I think, you know, once it's in there, it's great. I've already paid my, you know, 10, 15 grand up front, maybe gotten my money back from the boiler upgrade scheme or some proportion of that money back, sorry, from the boiler upgrade scheme. But that was the difficulty for me. It was knowing where to go for that advice and information. And also like we were really keen, you know, we went with these um, MCS accredited suppliers. So mm. kind of the big tick in terms of, of who you want to go with to make sure they've, they've got all the relevant training and knowledge and still had conflicting information. So just knowing kind of who to trust, who to go with, where that industry and peer support is, it's just hard to navigate. And it really makes me think back to the very last episode um, we recorded, Matt, about retrofit and the social relations of retrofit and the need, you know, for that better information in your trusted peer network maybe a one-stop shop i mean i, I would say that's so oh, important for heat pumps becky you're speaking my <laughs> language also the two and a half thousand people who've had these positive experiences who are they going to tell you know and, and that ripple effect that kind of networking effect and and how do you get that message out there because if you pick up and i won't name them um, but if you pick up certain newspapers they are leading day in day out with stories about how dissatisfied people are with heat pumps with electric vehicles now Becky, you are the sage on this because you've had an EV, you didn't get on with it for because of the network and you've you've swapped up, you've gone heat pump. So look, it's not all perfect, but let's take this in the round. 80% of people, according to this study, are happy. And those are good numbers in my view. They are, they are. And I think heat pump now it's in, absolutely grand. We had a few teething issues, but again, that's not really captured in this survey. So I would say this is great to hear that people, once they've got it, are happy with it. Now we need to think about how to really support people getting these into their homes and making that transition in the first place. Agreed. Good. Well, shall we move on to the uh, to the meat, which is your big study and project, which I've kind of been involved with, I guess, on the fringes, but it would be great to bring the guests up to speed about what the project is, who's funding it, and why it's important before we, uh, before we get into a chat. Becky, should that... Why don't you kick us off, Fraser? I'll, I mean, do you I'll want okay. us to do... Do we want us to do our self-IDs? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm uh, Fraser Stewart, the Just Transitions lead at Regen and so-called Malcolm Tucker of the Energy System. <laughs> <laughs> so-called by whom? <laughs> Not Amanda Iannucci, I'm sure. <laughs> Becky. <laughs> Becky. Oh, uh, my name is Rebecca Ford. I am the head of demand and flexibility at Regen, and the poor person that has to keep Fraser in check throughout this work. <laughs> oh, goodness, yeah, you deserve the Victoria Cross, I think. It's a, right, so it's two full-time jobs, <laughs> two full-time jobs. Yeah, uh, yes, okay. Well, tell us a bit more. What's the project about? So, for the last about six months now, Becky and I have been working with Scottish government, funded by uh, Climate Exchange, who fund policy research on behalf of Scottish government, looking into how we can leverage local and community energy 
to deliver against Scotland's national just transition outcomes. Some of you will know already that uh, Scotland has a draft energy strategy and just transition plan out just now. They've just finished the consultation. It's really the next kind of flagship energy strategy for Scotland, bringing together those big sort of just transition principles as well about fairness and about equity uh, within the shift to a low carbon energy system. And within that, they've been very, very keen to figure out how to re-energise, revitalise local and community energy, recognising the opportunity that local and community energy has uh, to deliver much wider value to, to people and places right across, across the country. Uh, so we were commissioned to, to dig into this research. We did a whole lot of academic research at the beginning. We held a, a small-scale citizens' jury, a people's panel, where we talked with actual normal human folk uh, about the issue to see how we can sort of build those principles of fairness into, into new local and community energy initiatives. And we're currently finalising our, our recommendations for Scottish government, having spoken to a load of stakeholders as well. Becky, did I miss anything? You never do, Fraser. <laughs> Good. And I'd like to come back to the citizens' jury, but why are they commissioning you at this point I, I, there's a big consultation that's just gone out from scottish government they're asking well because i know because we strathclyde had to respond to this and i was involved in leading it 50 60 questions big exercise so they've got a whole load of information coming in there about how you do a clean and fair energy transition what's the niche you're filling with this project so our real focus on this is local and community energy. And I think that's really a really important topic, not just for Scotland, but the UK more broadly. So Scotland's always been very strong on community energy. They have a whole team in Scottish government and a support program called CARES all around community energy. So it is a real priority for Scotland. But I would say increasingly, maybe over the last sort of five to 10 years, we've seen local energy crop up more and more. And so really focused less on, say, small community groups or community groups in a specific area, often formed just through people living in that area, taking action and coming together. We've started to also see this growth in local authorities and places. So cities, towns, sometimes regions play a much bigger role in their energy system, whether that's in an energy project. So looking at kind of involvement, for example, in developing energy resources in that area, or whether it's things like local area energy planning, which we're seeing much more of. And in Scotland, particularly the um, local heat and energy efficiency strategies that all um, councils are having to develop. So local and community energy as I said, been been kind of a, a big focus, particularly in Scotland for a while. And that focus is growing, particularly with regards to local. And I think what's really important now is to understand the role that this is going to play in that broader energy transition. So how can we make sure that as this grows, it does it in a way that is actually going to benefit people of Scotland, not just people in one community or one area, but everyone across the board? Right. And now... I said earlier in the kick around, impaired with an MP, um, understanding a little bit more about the type of information they want and how they want it. So I'm going to give you both a bit of an elevator pitch. Why do we need to be talking about low, local and community energy, or local or community energy, not necessarily the same thing? Why do we need these for emissions, but also for social justice and making 
the UK and Scotland a fairer place? What what do they give us that non-local, non-community energy doesn't? There are a few different benefits. There are distinct benefits first for the energy system. The more locally uh, you do energy, uh, the better you can optimise that energy use locally. And if you look at the work that we did with Prospering from the energy revolution, we know that you can save a hell of a lot of money on things like network investment too. The energy system is becoming more decentralised and more local. But that provides a real opportunity to tailor the energy system locally to local need to better reflect the, the needs of people. And I think for me, this is the big sell on this, especially at a community level where you have really, really direct influence. With that more local nature, with that air quotes, lower level approach to energy, you have a better opportunity for people to feed into the process, to leverage uh, local actors, stakeholders, organisations, to, to reach those typically excluded within energy decision making to, again, better tailor those, those solutions locally uh, to, to the needs of, of local people. But we also know, finally, from community energy in particular, but also local energy increasingly, that there's a range of, of opportunities on offer. Community-owned energy systems have generated, on average, 34 times more financial value for communities than community benefit funds from big developments, for instance. Smart local energy systems can provide a mass of new job opportunities for, for uh, local tradespeople, installers, but also in data, digital, engineering, etc., etc., etc. So there's a whole lot of value to be captured there for, for businesses, for economy as well, by doing things locally um, and with communities and citizens at the, the heart of that process versus a one-size-fits-all approach where you just horse on with it. And, uh, and hope for the best. I don't think we're saying local versus national. There's so much stuff that still has to happen at that national scale, right? We're not going to get to net zero by trying to do all of our energy generation in a local way. But a lot of the challenges that we are now faced with have to be addressed locally. And local councils are in a prime place to deliver and implement solutions. So we're seeing network constraints happening at local levels that can't be dealt with on a national scale we have to address this locally because the problems are happening locally we're trying to transform our heating systems our transport systems again these are all things that are so place dependent and place specific mm -hmm. and so there's absolutely no way that we're going to be able to deliver these solutions at the speed and scale we need to for net zero unless local places are involved in developing locally specific solutions and people are such an important part of that matt you mentioned in our earlier discussion about heat pumps well you know heating's massive people are at the heart of this and doing things in their area in those local areas are the only way to bring people really into this into this mix that we're going to need for the future i think that place specific point around the way that you use energy, the way that you get around, all that. That's so important, Becky. I think that's so right. And I think that's why trying to do a transition that's place agnostic, again, not to say that it's just local or it's just national, but without recognising place somewhere within that um, fundamentally overlooks so much of the 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 detail and that that kind of the critical way that we, we do interact with energy. I would argue as well, though, a big part of this is the just transition element. And if you do it agnostic, ag agnostic to that social justice piece, 
then that's where you're at the big risk of of leaving people behind. So it's trying to marry those two things together, that more localised or local within the, the national transition and how you leverage that to to deliver the, the social justice side of things. Yeah, and okay, so here is, here's the crux, isn't, isn't it? So I think one of the... You've outlined a number of the positives. You're starting to move into some of the potential catches because, you know, what you initially presented, Fraser, was sort of utopian and I was like, sign me up, you know, and then obviously <laughs> the question, what's, what's the catch? One of the things that we hear time and time again is if you go local, if it's um, that sort of granular, disaggregated level and you are hypersensitive to place and then you're having to develop something that's potentially bespoke in some form, either a bespoke project or you are tailoring a consultation, a kind of uh, participation and engagement process to to that lo- locality. You have to be sensitive to where you are, Right. How do you marry that, that bespoke nature with scalability and replicability? Because that's where scale comes from. So I completely hear you, but how do we, how do we get big and get there quickly? So I think there's a really important distinction here between the ultimate solution that you create and the method or the approach that you use to develop that solution. Actually, at the moment, what we see is a lot of bespoke solutions being developed that are therefore not replicable. And sometimes you end up with sort of the the more bespoke they are, the better married they are to that place, the better solutions they might bring in that place, but the less replicable they are. And then on the flip side, if they're developed in a way that's replicable, they might be less tailored to that place and less likely to engage people in that place so might deliver not such great outcomes for that place is there a sweet spot i think there is a sweet spot and i think as i said i think the sweet spot is in the approach that you take and so you know with the with the work that our cyber physical team in the energy rev space dealt with so they were particularly looking at what is some of the some of the underpinning things that need to be in place to allow you to manage a system to give you those very contextually specific outputs that you want what they came up with is the need for like plug and play. So you need to have solutions that you have like replicable methods, but that can be tailored then to deliver the outcomes that different places need. The the replicability and scalability point, I think Becky's right in everything she said. I'd also say that maybe a bit controversial, but I think re- replicability is overrated. And I think scalability doesn't necessarily come from it's not necessarily about having the one solution that works everywhere, but it's about making sure, particularly when you're talking about community ownership or if you're talking about communities being able to engage in other projects, it's not so much about having the same model or the same project, but it's about having the capacity equitably across communities, across local authorities, across regions, so that every community or or, or area realistically could develop this kind of project if they were so inclined. Now, you can promote that, in areas where there's been less activity around local and community energy. And I think that's a really important undertaking. But for me, the key to scaling it up and making it happen um, across the country is much more about building that capacity into communities, local authorities and local areas, because right now it is patchy. Some places do it really well. Other places don't have it quite so much. So it's making sure that everyone has the opportunity realistically to get it done. Now we're getting into it. Um, Sorry, I'd like. Can I just briefly come back on Fraser's point? Because uh, what I wanted to to raise was having the capacity to do something and the capability. Again, separate things. We've covered these on the pod. In my mind, capability is kind of the the skills, the resources, the, the capacity is actually the, the the time and money to exercise them. If if you, if you will, that's one thing. You need those in place for. It's not just a community, but a local authority. A let's call it a place based coalition. 
to do, get something done. But on the other hand, there needs to be something on the shelf somewhere, ideally, that can be sort of pulled off, manipulated, adapted at, on the, in terms of that play-based context, and then used. What you don't want is a blank piece of paper, because I think that's too frightening. Um, <laughs> and, and you want to know what you're picking up. So that that replicability point, I think there's something there. It's almost an adaptability point. Yeah, maybe. I think having something to point to isn't a bad thing. So something that Local Energy Scotland, Community Energy Scotland, and anyone working in community energy, I know there's a few listeners, um, case studies, case studies, case studies, is a really big thing to help at least provide a, a foundation or a baseline for, okay, this has been done. Could this be possible? Could we adapt it? So I, I think that's right, but I think there's a, there's, there's a seeming desire to want to go, okay, we've got this model. This is the model. Let's do it everywhere versus here's a range of opportunities. How can we make it work in the, yeah. in our area or in our community? Yeah. And I would say like when you look at and you talk to people doing community energy or when you talk to people in local authorities doing local energy, some of the things that need to be replicable are not the full solution. It might be the legal structure to set up the cooperative it mm -hmm. might be, you know it might yeah. be like the tool the digital tools to enable them to do planning it's not that you're taking one solution from one place and replicating it elsewhere it's that the tools and the support structures that underpin it can be replicable and can help build that capacity in different places yeah. okay so my, my head is kind of just exploding now so <laughs> there's something here about the will and then there's the way so you know, often it's like, where there's a will, there's a way, right? But not necessarily the case. And you ask any kind of community environmental group who've tried to do something, uh, or even a council, come up against lots of barriers. So I want maybe just to, so broadening the, the point out a little bit. Is there anything your study tells us about how you can kind of cultivate the will to do something? And then how do you clear the way to exercise that will? We're not just talking about a community, right? We are talking about these place-based consortia you know, the, the coalition of the willing, if you will. Mm -hmm. I think, well, something that came through strongly in particularly in the people's panel that we did, the small scale citizens jury, we went into that with 22 people sort of randomly selected from the Scottish population. One of them had heard of local or community energy. So when we say, just for clarity, when we say that, when we say local energy, we're thinking typically about local authority led projects. When we say community, we're talking community owned, community developed and delivered. And the rest had not heard of this? No idea. Line. Absolutely no idea. So that that jury, that people's panel that we ran, we ran over four evening sessions. Uh, there were two, two and a half hours per session. And by the end of it, people were delivering lots of recommendations. Numero uno among those recommendations was there needs to be some kind of wide scale promotion of local and community yeah. energy. Because you cannot get people to want to deliver projects or you cannot demystify a process if people don't have a clue what it is in the first place. So I think before we even think about how do you mobilize will, because you'll, you'll be the same, Matt. You've been working in the space, Becky. You've been working in local energy systems for, for yonks now. There are very few people in the world that you talk to, particularly about community involvement and community ownership of energy. Very few people come back to you and say, well, that sounds like a terrible idea. Most people think, well, that sounds really, really good. We own energy locally. It generates revenue yeah. for us and we make a bit of money and maybe one day we'll be able to use the energy of off-gem, get the finger out and fix the regulations on supply. People generally like the idea, but nobody knows about it. And certainly that has to be then matched to mobilize that will with adequate resource 
distributed relatively evenly across the country with that capability and capacity building. So I think that that point on letting people know first, but then following that up with resource so that people realistically can get their projects done. Yeah, absolutely. And the other the other key point I think coming out very strongly from this uh, from this people's panel and during the sessions we were basically talking to people about how can local and community energy be done in a way that it does include and benefit people in a fair way right so we were really trying to understand how it could work for all people particularly people who are typically excluded from energy system projects or from the energy system transition and so that was our focus and as well as that notion of it needs to be better promoted because people are just didn't know anything about it didn't know how to get involved although we're talking about local energy one of the most agreed upon statements was that national government and local government, so across all level of government, there needed to be conclusive and resounding support. So this is something that needs to be just uh, supported and action taken, not just in those local areas, but from national governments as well. Okay, I'd like to pick up on that point then before we conclude around broadening this out beyond the usual suspects because I think that does two things here one is what is it you would hope it starts to reach people who haven't been reached and many of those individuals will need reaching and there's a I think there's a strong justice component to that but the second is that it will offer scale and momentum in terms of taking local climate action which is obviously this pod's all about so how do we go beyond the usual suspects. Fraser, you've, you've identified about awareness raising, you've talked about levelling the playing field, but I'd maybe like to get a little bit more specific because this is something on the back of the last pod around the social relations of retrofit. We were talking very specifically about, well, if you had a pot of money, which stakeholders would you kind of target to then cascade down and reach households? So, you know, whether it's the local football team or the church or, you know, the scouts or girl guides, you know, it's it goes into recommendations for Scottish government and others. How do you reach the so far unreachable? I think there are a couple of ways. The the, the first is on that that capacity and capability building, and that that involves it. It's not anything really fancy or innovative. It involves funding development officers from the likes of Community Energy Scotland or Local Energy Scotland, or even within local authorities to go out into those communities, whether that's in the local sports teams or community centres or whatever it might be, to try and reach those people and, and, and build the ideas there. The second thing, though, and this is something that came out really, really strongly in a lot of the stakeholder engagement that we did, is that fuel poverty charities, social justice charities on the ground in these communities are crucial as trusted organisations who can reach people not typically reached by, you know, Development trust associations who are putting up a wind turbine up in the Highlands someplace. No offence, great things. The problem with that, of course, is that we know from this pod, from speaking, speaking to South Seed, Poppy and Agnes, we already know that those organisations are really, really strapped. They rely on uh, temporary piecemeal competitive funding to get things done. And I think you could do a hell of a lot by providing more substantive, less competitive, less restrictive resource uh, into organisations like those and building that uh, institutional organisational capacity at a local level to help access people not typically access. That's a general rule of thumb as well. Bearing in mind local authorities have some of that capability, um, 
but they also could benefit a lot from one, having their own energy projects that generate additional revenue, but two, having some of that additional uh, connection to community organisations and local. Yeah, and, and that trusted intermediary, that trusted organisation, Fraser, a lot of that comes down to brand and it takes takes ages to build a brand. I mean, South Seas has been around now for over yeah. 10 years and it's only at that point, I think, that most people I mention it to in the South Side are like, oh yeah, I know them. You know, you can't build that overnight. And and that worries me if we're trying to get to, you know, in Glasgow and, and other cities, Edinburgh and many others across the UK and far beyond, 2030, net zero. Well, in order to build that brand and to, to develop that legitimacy, we need to start building stuff now. I will also say that as well as having that trusted source of information, it, it's what the what information is being shared and how it's being shared. And mm. one of the things that Fraser and I worked really hard on with this people's panel was to make sure that we brought in people to share information in clear ways. And in fact, all of our all of the participants in this had red cards. So if somebody started talking using jargon or terms that were too complex, they could hold up their red card, which I, I love. We need I think we need some of those. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Amateur referee kit, Fraser. We'll get that sorted. <laughs> and we really challenged people. We were like, you cannot use a graph. So we had Callum Watkins come on. So Callum's been deeply involved in Glasgow Community Energy, he came on and explained the energy system transition from centralised fossil-based system to where we are now without using a single graph. I mean, we really challenged our, our kind of contributors. But the fact of the matter is, is that information was presented to people in a way that they could understand and engage with it, and also in a way that made them get it. And just like mm. you were saying, Matt, about presenting information to politicians, same is true for sharing information with the public. And I'll share this story. I, I actually don't really... think there's a great deal of difference, if I'm honest. And this Probably isn't doing is. a disservice to politicians or, by extension, the public. <laughs> I think it's a similar language, if I'm honest. I think so. And I think the power of that communication is is so strong. And so we had one of the members of our People's Panel shared a story and said when she came into this, she didn't know really much about energy, looked at wind turbines and thought they were really alien, ugly, horrible, unsightly things, wished they weren't in Scotland. And three sessions in said, I get it. Like, I understand them now. I understand why we've got them. I want to invest. I've talked to my family about how we could maybe invest and get involved in share ownerships and just completely changed her perspective on energy, renewable energy and the role she could play in, in the energy system. And I think that's so important. And so part of it's the information and how it's presented. And then the other side of that is okay, I want to engage, how do I engage? Yeah, and so that could be, how do I, yeah, what's the what's the path in? And that might be like, okay, how do we even start a community energy project? Because that information is just, I mean, there's a lot of information there, but for a lot of people, they just don't even know where to access that information or what is out there. So I think better pointers to some of that those solutions. But the other side of that, I think is better business models, no interest loans, like financial support to allow people to engage and participate in this yeah. as well so it's a it's a whole kind of mixture of things there's no single silver bullet it is about reaching people and then it's providing the mechanisms that overcome those barriers to engagement well you've you've sold it to me so i'm <laughs> hopefully you've sold it to a few others i thought that was absolutely fascinating thank you for for uncovering that and i'm hoping i'm guessing we'll hear the the results relatively soon will, will it be available with regen and others 
It will be. I have definitely finished writing it. And... <laughs> <laughs> what I'm prodding at is that if our listeners are wanting to learn more, I guess it will be out there in the online ether in the not too distant. It will. Becky will be Becky's uh, writing the brief on the the people's panel. There's a blog coming with that. There'll be a blog coming with the main report. The main report will be out shortly once it's all been sent through, signed off, all that good stuff. So you'll have it soon enough. I feel the whole episode coming on about citizens, juries, people's panels. You you guys obviously been bitten by the bug. <laughs> Maybe that's for, for a future episode. But anyway, thank you both. Now, Fraser, why don't you pivot nicely <laughs> now from guest to host? Yeah. Oh, fascinating discussion. Really one of the better ones that we've we've had recently. They I were think. good guests. They were good. They were. Very they informed. Were. Very, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Apart from that Scottish guy. Um <laughs> Thank you very much. You've been listening to Local Zero. Please take two seconds, if you can, you definitely can, to subscribe to the pod, hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to us. And if you haven't already, go find and follow us on Twitter at Local Zero Pod to get involved with the discussions there. Also, email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.